1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy. My name is Robert Delise. I host New Books in Philosophy with Carrie Figder. In our bi-monthly podcast, we'll be talking with philosophers about their newly published books. Today, I'll be talking with Professor Sanford Goldberg about his new book, Relying on Others, which was published with Oxford University Press this year. Sandy Goldberg is Professor of Philosophy at Northwestern University. It's difficult to deny that, in our efforts to know and understand the world around us, we rely heavily on others. Colleagues give us reports about what went on in the office while we were away on vacation. Eyewitnesses tell us about what they saw at the scene of the crime. And newscasters, journalists, and commentators inform us about the social and political events of the day. If left strictly to our own devices, our knowledge would reduce dramatically. And perhaps more importantly our cognitive lives would become in various ways impoverished. But one may wonder about the nature of this reliance. Is my relying on my colleague's report about what went on in the office while I was away on vacation in any important way different from my relying on my eyes when I see a red object? Is my colleague's testimony simply another bit of data to consider when forming my beliefs about what went on in the office? Or is there some deeper story to be told about the nature of our epistemic reliance on others? In relying on others, Goldberg proposes that when we rely on others, we count on their cognitive processes. So the justification for our beliefs, then, sometimes is located, at least in part, in the heads of other people. Now, back in 1973, Hilary Putnam published an influential paper about meaning, in which he declared, Cut the pie any way you like meanings just ain't in the head. Goldberg's view, it seems, has it that justification ain't in the head of individual believers, but rather resides in many heads at once. This is a provocative thesis. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Sandy Goldberg. Bob, how are you? Good. Uh, How are you doing today? Doing well, thanks. Excellent. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks very much for having me. Right. Today, on New Books in Philosophy, we're talking with Sandy Goldberg about his new book with Oxford University Press, Relying on Others. Now, this book presents a novel view about the nature of our epistemological relations with others. Uh, But before we explore your views, Sandy, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into philosophy and particularly how you got into epistemology?
0: Sure. Um, Getting into philosophy was actually something that started probably in high school. Uh, I had a wonderful, wonderful high school teacher in English my senior year, Mr. Coppola, who um, I have no idea where he is now, but he was a wonderful teacher, and uh, he raised many philosophical issues that I realized were philosophical only years later. Uh, I I found myself really enjoying his class, and so when I told him about it, he said, maybe you should consider studying philosophy in college. Was this a philosophy class in in high school? English class in high school. Okay. But he was a person who had, I guess, a love of philosophy. In my high school, they didn't actually have philosophy.
1: See, I I had a philosophy class in high school with an English teacher. It was called Introduction to Philosophy.
0: Ah, so you were
1: fortunate. We actually had it shoved into English, (laughs) called called English, when in fact it was philosophy. Um, I I wonder how many philosophy classes there are at the high school level in, in, in the United States. But anyway, please continue. So that was it. So I I decided I'd take a little
0: bit of of philosophy in college. I don't know that I was going to major in it. But what I realized is that in other classes, when I was in another class, I would often ask questions where the teachers would respond by saying, well, that's actually something that we don't address here. If you're interested in that, go ask the philosophy department. Um, (laughs) And I, you know, I subsequently came to think of this phenomenon as my intellectual spitballing from the back of the room (laughs) and intellectual spitballs, it turns out, are best in philosophy classes, not in other classes. So that's when I decided I thought I might major in it.
1: (laughs) Well, that's excellent. And how did you get, were you initially interested in epistemology or?
0: No, actually, initially I was interested in, in, primarily in philosophy of mind and philosophy of language and in um, philosophy of art or aesthetics. And uh, I got interested in epistemology actually only indirectly, and that is through some of the things that I was interested in once I got to graduate school. Um, I was interested in uh, a, a debate that was raging in the 90s. It seems to have died out a bit now, but it was about the compatibility of externalism about the mind and externalism about language with uh, first-person authority. Right. And first-person authority, of course, is a doctrine in, um, in epistemology. So that was my first taste of epistemology. And then I got interested in issues of uh, memory, um, and issues of memory not just issues regarding how do we determine the contents of our memory, but how do we determine whether in in virtue of having a memory experience, we count as knowing what we think we remember. So those were ways that I got uh, very interested in epistemology through self-knowledge and memory.
1: Hmm, Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, why don't we turn to uh, talking about the book? Would that be okay? Sure. I'd love to. All right. Excellent. So, um... Relying on others is uh, sort of an extended examination of the nature of epistemic dependence in particular, although I I take it that you're interested uh, in other forms of epistemic relatedness or the ways in which um, our knowledge and justification depend upon uh, uh, other people. Um, And the central kind of epistemic dependence, uh, though you discuss other kinds in the book as well, um, but the kind that you focus on in the book is... um, is testimonial uh, dependence or uh, the ways in which um, our claims to knowledge depend upon other people say so in some way or other. Um, and now I want to get to your views about about the, that matter, about testimony uh, in a minute. But why don't you first, uh, since you already mentioned um, externalism and internalism in your uh, discussion of how you got into philosophy um, and first personal authority and that sort of thing, why don't you give us some background uh uh, uh, in the, the sort of terrain of epistemology within which relying on others uh, is located. Um, you say in the book that you're beginning from the assumption of uh, some variety of reliabilism, what you call process reliabilism. Uh, can you sketch the terrain for us a little bit?
0: Sure. Um, with your permission, I'll actually start back a bit even further than one normally does in these matters, because sure. it might actually give us some uh, nice sense of, of why philosophers talk this way. Excellent. So I, I tend to think that the beginning of um, epistemology, contemporary epistemology, comes with Descartes in the 17th century. Um, if uh, we remember Descartes in the 17th century in his dressing gown by the fire, of course, I'm talking about the meditations, he, he set himself an interesting uh, uh, epistemological challenge. And that was the challenge of trying to discern from the armchair what he knows and what Prior to the inquiry, he thought he knew, but in fact is not known. So he thought that he could discern the difference between what he actually knows and what he merely thought he knew from the armchair. Um, This gave birth to what I would call um, the, the idea of epistemic autonomy, that each one of us for ourselves, at least once in our lives, should sit down and perhaps later in life and try to certify everything that we know or take ourselves to know, in order to determine whether, in fact, we know it, where the assumption was that because God gave us our the, the, the gift of, of reason, we are in a position to do this. Right. I actually think this is the background to uh, a lot of what we now discuss under these technical terms internalism and, and externalism. So um, suppose you think, for example, that the kind of inquiry Descartes was doing, determining what one oneself knows, is the sort of thing that one can do from the armchair. So you should be able to tell uh, whether you know something by reflecting from the armchair on your evidence for it and the reasons that you have to believe in it, how it relates to your other beliefs. You might think that that would be sufficient to tell you, perhaps if not you, whether you know something, whether you're in a good position to know it, whether your evidence is good enough for you to be, as epistemologists say, justified in believing it. That view um, is a view that we would call an internalist view in epistemology. The idea is that whatever it is that puts you in a position where you you can claim to be in a good epistemic position, you can discern that from the armchair merely by reflecting on your evidence, your reasons, your other beliefs. That's a kind of internalism. In the 19, uh, I guess the late 1960s, early 1970s, many epistemologists came to think that uh, this. Um, this project, this internalist project, was, um, falsifies, uh, falsifies the, the nature of epistemology. That is, what really puts us in a position to, to know things is not, is not, or at least not necessarily, anything that we can discern from the armchair, anything that we can discern by reflection. It may actually be the de facto reliability of our, of our perceptual faculties. And that gave rise to a a general view that is known as externalism, which holds, for example, that properties like epistemic justification uh, are properties that depend on factors that can't or at least can't necessarily be be discerned by by reflection. So whether or not my perceptual faculties are reliable is not something that I can discern by by reflecting on my perceptual faculties. So that's the internalism and externalism uh, uh, dispute. And. What I'm trying to do very briefly, I'm sorry, what I'm trying to do briefly in this book is to say uh externalism uh has has uh um, won many adherents and it hasn't gone far enough.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> um and so can you tell us a little bit though about um the various kinds of externalism? So uh as I mentioned, um you you begin very early in the book by saying that um a kind of reliabilism is your, as you call it, epistemological home. Um what other What's reliabilism? What particularly is process reliabilism? And uh, are there other kinds of externalism that are not reliabilist? Sure. Um, so,
0: I find myself right now uh, forming beliefs about the bike that I'm currently looking at in my office. Um, are those beliefs epistemically worthy? Are they good epistemically? Are are they good from an epistemic point of view? From the point of view of my trying to acquire truths and avoid falsities. Um so i 'm inclined to think with the externalist that the answer to that question will depend on lots of things having to do with factors that i can't i can't determine merely by reflection. So I focus on one set of factors um, I focus on uh, as you pointed out on reliability how reliable is that belief the belief that that uh, i 'm currently looking at a uh, a bike in my office, and in particular. To, to compute the reliability of a belief really is to compute the reliability of the process or processes by which the belief was formed. This is called process reliabilism and that's this is where I, I say my my um, my epistemological home is uh, you look at the reliability of the process by which a belief was formed and sustained it's this is not the only kind of externalism that there is. There are other kinds of externalisms some people are interested not so much in reliability as um The ease with which I could have gone wrong in, in forming the belief that I did. So that uh, formulates a notion that some, phlo- some epistemologists call safety. Um, right. If easily I could have gone wrong in believing as I did through this through this process, um, they say that belief is not knowledge. It's not in a good epistemic position. Um, safety theory is a, uh, a type of, of externalism. There are others as well. I guess another leading kind of externalism would be a sensitivity theory. Um, this is a view that was made famous by, uh, Robert Nozick. Um, that view says, well, what really matters is whether, um, you would believe that even if it were false. So if it were false that I'm looking at a bike right now, would I still believe that I'm looking at a bike right now? he also thought, My my belief um, should be robust in the sense that if I were looking at a belief in, say, uh, another scenario that's a lot like the scenario, if I were looking at a belief, would I still continue to think that I'm looking at a belief? And if you you, uh, satisfy those two conditions, the first of which was the sensitivity condition, um, then my belief is epistemically good, epistemically worthy. Uh, The last externalism that I think is popular these days um, is an externalism that was made famous by... um, uh, by, I've forgotten his name now, at, at Notre Dame, Plantinga, Al, Al, Alton right. Plantinga, proper functionalism. So the idea is that what makes our beliefs epistemically good is that they're formed by a properly functioning uh, capacity of ours. Insofar as they are uh, formed by a properly functioning capa- uh, capacity of ours, that is a capacity that's functioning in the way that it was meant to function, then it's epistemically good and if not, it's not. That's an, That's probably the last kind of externalism that's that I'd mention right now because it's a, a kind that's that's very popular, certainly around here since we're only about two two hours from from Notre Dame. <laughs>
1: that's right. Well, let's get, um, just getting back now to the, the the claim with which you began that you think that reliableists have not gone far enough. Um, so uh, it sounds as if um, one of the main target well one of the main targets of the book, and it's even sort of uh, in a way implicit in a lot of what you've said so far, including the laying of the terrain of uh, contemporary epistemology. Um, is uh, a lot of the target is individualism. And I take it that part of what's wrong uh, by your lights with uh, armchair reflection is um, not only the usual thing about, you know, why in philosophy some people don't like armchairs, uh, but also that um, armchair reflection is a kind of solitary uh, reflection which involves or invokes, uh, or at least seems to invoke only your own internal cognitive capacities. And it looks as if, uh, one of the, the, the main themes in relying on others is that this kind of individualist commitment, um, that the epistemic project is in some way bounded by um, the, the borders of one's head or mind or, or uh, the, the, the limits of one's own faculties, that you want to reject this. That is, you want to socialize uh, reliability in a way that um, makes it anti-individualistic. Um, does that seem right? That seems exactly right, yes. Good. And in fact, um, you argue for, uh, you, realize, or you say in the book that, you, that your reader might find it um, surprising uh, that you charge um, some of the leading social epistemologists with being too individualistic. Um, could you explain some stuff uh, to us about individualism and why you think it fails, and in particular why you think that uh, some of the prominent social epistemologists are not yet socialized enough?
0: Good. Let me go back to, uh, to Descartes. So imagine that we tried to, we tried to, uh, perform the Cartesian task, uh, sitting down once in our lives in the armchair, uh, trying to determine what it is that we know, or even what it is that we're justified in believing. Let's, let's start with justified in believing. Okay. Now, suppose, um, suppose that I know, for example, that yesterday the Yankees didn't play. And how do I know that yesterday that the Yankees didn't play? I know that because I read it in the newspaper this morning. So now imagine that I'm trying to fulfill the Cartesian task of reflecting on this belief and figuring out whether I'm justified in believing it. What is my evidence uh, for this belief? Well, things that I can call to mind perhaps are things having to do with um, the New York Times being a a good newspaper, a reliable newspaper. Then I ask myself, well, how do I know that the New York Times is a good newspaper, reliable newspaper? Actually, that's something that I'm pretty confident. Uh, part of my justification for believing that is that other people told me that it's a good newspaper, a reliable right. newspaper. Uh, maybe there are times when the New York Times reports on something that I can check firsthand. This actually is not something that happens very often, but occasionally, perhaps there are cases where I can check firsthand. Uh, but given that I don't, I'm not often in a position to check firsthand on what the New York Times tells me because I I love reading. For example, I love I love reading the sports section, and I'm rarely at those sports games. Uh, okay. I love reading the the uh, international section, and I'm rarely abroad at the time that the Times is reporting on these things. Um, and even when I am abroad, I'm not at the at the, at the the with the president of other countries, the prime minister of other countries. Oh no, no, it's true. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, so you ask yourself, how much, how how can I certify merely sitting in my armchair? How can I certify? in a particular case where i have relied on another person or another source that the source is to be relied upon so my impression is that we that that question is a very difficult question to answer many people do try to say well although you can't be certain about uh the new york times you can have lots of reasons reasons that you yourself can appreciate that don't essentially depend on testimony uh for thinking that the new york times is uh is reliable or is to be its word is to be taken I tend to think that's wrong I tend to think that what happens is we have a number of capacities as human beings a number of of, uh, cognitive competences if you like it and the competences that are the good ones are those that conduce to reliable uh, sorry to true belief more often than to false belief and that among the competences that we have is the capacity to distinguish between reliable and unreliable testimonies in the first instance, I have to say this is not something that I think we acquired through the through encountering the written word. It's something I think we, we encountered through uh, we acquired through encountering the spoken word. So the uh, idea is we just have an ability to discern for better or for worse those folks you can rely on from those folks that you can't. It's not perfect. Of course we go wrong. Of course there are liars that can that can dupe us. There are those that are incompetent, but we can't discern their incompetence. But that's that's the the view that I wanted to take. It was a if you like a broadly Reliabilist view about these matters. Now, I'm sorry, yeah, that still doesn't answer your second question, which is why then, um, you might ask, why accuse people who have developed reliabilism? here I have in mind in particular Alvin Goldman, who also has developed social epistemology, uh, he's largely responsible for its flourishing today, why accuse him of being insufficiently social in the way that he approaches these things? Right. And there it's it's a slightly um, longer answer. But let me see if I can cut to the to the to the detail, to the uh, to the uh, chase. Um, You might think that all that we need to know in order to know whether a particular thinker is in a good position in a given case where she's relied on the word of another. All we really need to know is how well she does when she distinguishes between good uh, testifiers and bad testifiers. How reliable is she at distinguishing people that can be relied upon from those that can't be relied upon? That, I think, is the standard way that even somebody like Alvin Goldman and others who are reliabilists will think about these matters. But that's not the way that I think we should think about these matters. The, 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 the basic idea in a nutshell is this, Bob. When I trust you or I take your word, I am relying on you I'm not just relying on my own ability to distinguish reliable from unreliable testifiers. I am relying on you. So the idea is that when I take your word for something, um, how well off I am epistemically depends on how, how good your word was. And so we see how well off I am epistemically depends on lots of facts about you in particular. And that's, this is the anti-individualism that I stress throughout, throughout relying on others.
1: Right. So uh, and so just a little bit more on this, because um, uh, there's a very, very nice series of arguments, in fact, uh, in relying on others um, against what struck me uh, as somebody who's kind of on the outside of these debates, I'll confess, uh, as a uh, sort of a, a likely kind of response, which says something like the following. I believe that you call this in the book the sort of common view of testimony, right? That, um, well uh, I'm relying on, on, on Sandy Goldberg for his testimony, but Sandy's testimony, uh, is really just like another factor, uh, that, that counts as, um, relevant to what I believe in my environment. That is, it's, it's kind of like the bike in your office in a certain respect. It's just another source of evidence that I need to take into account when I'm forming my beliefs. Now, it seems as if, um, your account of testimony, um, requires us to reject that what looks like a commonsensical or man-on-the-street kind of view about the epistemic significance of testimony and actually adopt a a more robust conception that in relying on another person when that other person is offering testimony, I'm not just treating that person as another source of information in my environment i'm relying on them in this steeper sense that I, me- I think you meant to convey when you said i'm relying on you right it sort of it matters what's going on in the testifier's own uh cognitive system uh to me and that um this sort of standard or more common sense view of testimony can't quite capture that can you explain to us how that argument uh roughly runs
0: yes um this strikes me as probably the core of, of the, the the book, if you like. Right. So um, here's one, one way you can think about testimony. You can think about testimony as a kind of evidence. So when someone tells you something, really what they're doing is they're providing evidence for you. Right. Um, that strikes me as wrong, and wrong in a very interesting way. So consider the following um, the following analogy, or I'll, I'll argue that it's an analogy. What... Does suppose that you have a memory impression um, that you and I talked on the phone three weeks ago? Suppose that right now you have a very vivid memory impression that you and I talked on the phone three weeks ago. How should we as epistemologists think of your memory impression? Should we think that it's merely evidence from which you're going to uh, draw an inference about our speaking on the phone three weeks ago? I want to suggest that that's the fundamentally wrong way to think about uh, memory experiences. In memory, in memory, in remembering something, what you are doing essentially is relying on your past self. You're relying on yourself to have acquired information in a reliable fashion, and you're also relying on yourself to have acquired information, um, uh, sorry, to have, uh, to have sustained that information in, a, in a, uh, a robust and reliable way as well. So it's not, we should not think of memory impressions as evidence. We should rather think of memory impressions as the end of a a process which started off at the point at which you acquired that information, and which at the end of which you're endorsing now having um, having relied on your, your the the processes acting reliably throughout the entire period. So if that's the right way to think about memory, and um, I don't actually argue for that in the book, I assume it, and I assume it in part because. Um, My my key audience here, I think, will be people who already think that that's the right way to think about memory, namely reliabilists and and others. If that's the right way to think about memory, I want to suggest it's also the right way to think about testimony. That is, you're not just giving me evidence from which I'm inferring that that what you say is true. Uh, I'm actually relying on you in precisely the same way, or at least in relevant respects the same way, as I rely on myself when I when I rely on my recollection of things and just as if I had acquired the belief in in a, a bizarre way suppose I I'm a big Yankees fan suppose I um, I uh, I formed the belief last week that last year the Yankees won the World Series and I form that suppose I form that belief by wishful thinking um, because at last they didn't win last year um, now imagine that I have a memory impression right now of the Yankees winning the World Series last year where that impression is the result of of a process that started out in wishful thinking. I want to say that in this case, I'm not justified in believing that the Yankees won the World Series last year, even though I have a memory impression of them winning it. And I don't because I'm relying on my past self and my past self let me down because I formed the belief through wishful thinking. In the same way, Bob, when I rely on you for for news about what's going on at, at Vanderbilt or in Nashville, when I rely on you, I'm relying on you not to let me down. I'm relying on you to give me reliable information, if you let me down, that affects the goodness of my beliefs when I form them on the basis of what you say. You are not merely giving me evidence, Um, because if you were merely giving me evidence, then assuming that I have reasons to think that evidence is good evidence, it wouldn't matter whether or not you're letting me down, as long as the evidence you're giving me is, from my perspective, good I would count as having a, a justified belief. And that strikes me as wrong because if you let me down, if you make things up, or if you are fundamentally incompetent, then even though I don't have reasons to think that you're incompetent or that you're letting me down, I think that affects the beliefs that I form through trusting you.
1: Excellent. So, But let me just ask you to maybe uh, draw a distinction. Um, and, and if you don't think this is a good distinction to draw, given your view, uh, explain why not um so the cases of letting you know the the testifier you know i let you down um and in fact um the kinds of letting down that 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 you've been uh, emphasizing are um these sort of culpable uh, i'm making things up or i'm being careless um i take it though that your view uh wants to recognize that there are uh, non culpable forms of uh an intel, uh, of of a testifier letting you down that is that i don't have to just be i mean th- there 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 are more ways than me just being a liar or a dissembler uh and letting you down It's also that um in relying on me as the testifier uh you are also dependent upon um my uh cognitive system uh in a way that um is is even uh deeper than just de- depending on me not to be a liar right correct
0: uh, absolutely correct yes
1: um so so then it seems as if um, it's the, the testifying case is not just a case in which I'm trusting uh, uh, I as the receiver or the recipient of the testimony, I'm not just trusting the person to be an honest uh, uh, reporter or an honest teller of what he or she knows. I'm also depending on that person, and also I'm not just depending on them to not be incompetent, right? It's also that um, they have to have a a kind of epistemic uh system that, um, is reliable in some broader, in some broader sense. Is that that it? You're, you're exactly right. Yes. So again, the analogy between memory and
0: testimony is good here as well. Think about it this way in memory. I'm I'm relying on my past self to have been competent in the ways that you're just talking about. Um, in testimony, I'm relying on you to be competent in those kinds of ways. Um, so I think that the analogy with
1: memory actually is a, is a, is a
0: really good one. And I think it, it works even to explain this part of things
1: right right excellent so let's then turn to um uh what you call in the book the extendedness hypothesis yeah and this is a you know this is the crux of the book this is the uh, um this is the, uh, the the main contention that um you devote in fact a whole chapter to trying to deal with various likely um Uh, critical responses. So the extendedness hypothesis, uh, if I can just put it in a nutshell, at least try it, if I'm not getting it right, correct me. The extendedness hypothesis really just is the sort of more formal expression of of what we've just been talking about with testimony and memory and the analogy between them. That is, in testimonial knowledge, um, I not only receive the testimony from the testifier as a bit of evidence or as a reason or as a consideration, I'm relying on the testifier in that part of the assessment of my belief on the basis of your testimony, part of that assessment has to include some assessment of the cognitive processes in the testifier, and that that's the that's the kind of reliance that you're uh, that 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 you're interested in, in calling our attention to, and that you also think that it, uh, various kinds of individualists and social epistemologists can't quite capture. Um, so the extendedness is that. Um, uh, the story that we have to, the story that we tell about my being justified uh in in my belief on the basis of your testimony has to include some account of the testifiers um uh cognitive processes is that is
0: that that's exactly right
1: yes that's, okay. that's very well put great so you devote a full chapter to uh, you realize that this is going to sound contentious and might even sound uh uh to some uh readers as as ripe for a reductio of some sort or another um, so you devote a full chapter to responding uh, to likely objections. Um, and um, I wonder if you can, uh, you don't have to run through, I think there's six objections, You know, I'm not asking you to run through all of them, but could you say some things about what you think are the likely critical responses to the extent of uh hypothesis and why uh, you don't think that they succeed?
0: Yes. Um, it, with, with your permission, I'll, I'll, I'll answer a question that you didn't ask first, though, which is Um, Why, why think that, that, uh, what, what is the point of endorsing that extendedness hypothesis? Because I think it'll help when I can uh, raise objections and try to give you my answers to them, um, to have that in mind. So think the, the, the fundamental question here is what is the process by which we form our beliefs? Now, if you take as, uh, your paradigmatic case perception, Think about the causal sequence that eventuates in your forming a perceptual belief. It starts, let's assume, um, this is obviously very simplistic, but assume it's a visual, a vision-based belief. So light reflects off the surface of an object. That light hits your retina. Your retina is irradiated. There's the what we call with technical language the snap, crackle, pop of cognition. <laughs> and all of a sudden you have a belief that there's a, there's a bicycle in front of you. Question, what part of that causal sequence is the belief-forming process. Here's a natural answer to that. The belief-forming process itself starts at the point at which your retinas are irradiated, includes all the snap, crackle, pop of cognition, and, if you like, uh, terminates at the point at which you form the belief. Um, That is to say, the whole belief-forming process takes place in your head. That strikes me as a very plausible thing to say about perception. And if you generalize from perception as I think many people did, including Alvin Goldman, um, if you generalize from perception, you might find the following view attractive. Every case of a belief-forming process is a case of something that takes place entirely in the head of the person whose belief is in question. What I'm doing in the book is I'm challenging that. That's the extendedness hypothesis. The extendedness hypothesis says that natural view is false. In particular, in testimony cases, in the way that you suggested, in testimony cases, my belief-forming process, the process that eventuates in my forming of the belief that I do, includes cognitive processing going on in your head. And this is why I not only believe but actually have good evidence to think that this view is very, very controversial. Namely, I've had about 15 of my friends tell me they think I'm obviously wrong. So um, I recognize that this is controversial. Um, that, in any case, is the, that's the, um, that's the extendedness hypothesis. Objections. Uh, there are a variety of objections. Um, one objection would be this. Look, um, belief-forming processes are what psychologists tell us are the belief-forming processes. And to the best of our knowledge, psychologists don't talk about belief-forming processes that take place in two heads. They take they talk about belief-forming processes that take place in one. Right. Um, the response that I want to give to that is that I don't think that anything that I say in the book requires that we go to the psychologist and tell them that they're wrong. So what all that I'm saying is that if our interest is in um, epistemology, that is assessing how well we're forming our beliefs from the perspective of trying to acquire true beliefs and avoiding false ones. If that's our perspective, then we have every reason in the world to think that belief forming processes are are um, extended in the way I'm suggesting. But that needn't say that from the perspective of psychology they have to be seen as extended. I'll leave it to the psychologists and the philosophers of psychology to tell us whether they need to be thought of as extended. So I don't don't think that objection objection works. Uh, Another objection is this. Look, we care a lot about behaving in a responsible fashion. A special case of that is we care a lot about forming beliefs in a responsible fashion. But surely... If you are a bad testifier, and the badness of your testimony is something that no responsible hearer would be able to discern in your testimony, that is, you look sincere and competent, to even the most discerning eye, it's not a mark against the hearer or the hearer's responsibility that she accepts what you've said in a case where you behaved irresponsibly. So if you think that epistemology should um, uh, be—should recognize— um or should be based on considerations of epistemic responsibility, it looks like nothing that you nothing that goes on in your mind is going to affect anything that goes on in my mind. That's an objection that I call the objection from responsibility. Right. And that may be that may be the single most um uh most cited objection that I've heard if my friends are to be trusted, um uh to the to the view. And I guess I, I'm not so moved by this because there is a lot that we do in forming beliefs that is uh, not in, under our control at all. When I form perceptual beliefs, those beliefs are not under my control. When I, have, when I form um, uh, beliefs about what you've just told me, those beliefs are not under my control. They're, they're near automatic and in the, in the, in uh, they're nearly automatically formed. So um, on the assumption that responsibility um, goes together with issues of control, it seems as though an awful lot of our mental lives, even the mental lives of us as individuals, is not something that's under our control. Hence, it's not obvious um, what kind of responsibility we have for
1: forming those beliefs. So, I go ahead. Well, uh, so uh, I'm I'm one of your friends who thought that the the responsibility objection um, had some teeth to it, good. and that um, the kind of response that you you gave in the book, which is what you're outlining now, um, uh. Might, um, uh, might occasion uh, a rejoinder of the following sort. It seems to me that uh, somebody pushing this responsible line, responsibility line could say to you, well, yes, it's true that a lot of the, um, the belief-forming processes in other kinds of cases um, are not under our control. Um, it might be that there's very little, all told, that's actually under our control. Um, Uh, about all kinds of things, not only beliefs, Um, and certainly in the the perceptual cases, um, you know, no matter how many times I'm told that the the Mueller-Lyer lines are the same length, I don't see them as the same length, Um, so I can't, um, in a way, uh, avoid, um, uh, no matter how hard I try, uh, sort of not getting the report that these two lines are different lengths. but uh, these seem to be cases, or seem, you seem to fix in your response on cases of sort of what we might call direct control. Um, but aren't there, isn't there another kind of control that uh, I, I take it that people who are responsibleists in epistemology are more interested in, and this gets into some of the, the, the virtue epistemic stuff, where um, I might not have direct control over these things, but surely I can take uh, action uh, uh, for some sort of diachronic control that is I can establish in myself certain kinds of capacities or uh, uh, certain kinds of uh, fail safes against some of the errors i 'm i 'm prone to, so it looks as if control um, can have this more extended uh, temporally extended um, you know, sort of habit forming uh, kind of concern, and it does seem that there 's a, a at least in my mind a, a lingering worry that um, too much of the question of whether I'm to be you know, blamed or get credit for a particular belief in these cases, uh, testimony particularly, is going to depend on things that aren't even possibly in my control. Good, good, good. Um, so how, how, would you, how would you respond to that?
0: <laughs> good. Uh, first of all, I, I'm going to concede everything that you just said here, because I think what, what you're saying is, is correct. Um, and I do think that when we think about epistemic responsibility, we often think about responsibility in this, what you're calling this, indirect sense. So right. I I I don't no quibbles with that I think you're just right about that. Um here's here's what I I want to say to that. Um I there's two things to be said. One of them is a um is a is a uh, I'll call it a non-concessive response and one of them is a more concessive response. They actually I think are parts of 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 one overall response that I'd like to give but I'm going to break them into two parts. Okay. Part 1, the non-concessive part. Um granting everything that you just said, uh what I want to say is that responsibility, as it figures in philosophy—sorry, as it figures in epistemology—should um, go precisely the same way that uh, belief-forming processes go. That is to say, um, how well I am doing forming beliefs may go beyond how responsible I am in forming beliefs. I may be perfectly responsible in forming my beliefs, but if you messed me up uh, for whatever reason—either you're incompetent or you're, you're you're lying to me or whatever the case may be. That reflects badly on my epistemology through no fault of my own. This is non-concessive because it's basically saying, look, the notion of responsibility just is not going to cut it for us. Um, Epistemology should not care about the notion of responsibility when the notion of responsibility is restricted to what I am responsible for, what any single agent is responsible for, at least not in a testimony case. That's that's non-concessive. But I think that's actually part of a bigger reply, which is concessive. Suppose you think that epistemology um, should be sensitive to considerations of responsibility. Then I say socialize responsibility. And we should have a social conception of the virtues, at least those virtues that are implicated in beliefs that are formed through our relying on others. And in fact, in work subsequent to to this book, in a paper that I gave in Bled and subsequently published in, um, in Octa Analytica, I, I tried to argue that if you want a virtue theory, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a big fan of virtue theory, but if you do want a virtue theory, then the proper lesson from testimony is that certain virtues are social virtues. And the, one of the effects of a, a virtue being social is that whether or not I have my own epistemic house in order, that is to say, from the skin in, I did everything right. Often is not going to determine whether those social virtues are in play because it's going to determine uh it's going to depend on the cooperation of other people as well those in my community
1: so um okay well that i, I like the the sketching of the of the, of the of the broader uh view um uh, this more concessive uh, view um, is this something that you are, you could see yourself endorsing or do you i mean one of the worries about virtue theoretic accounts in general, not just in epistemology, but uh, all of the places that they, in ethics particularly, uh, and in political theory, uh, is that they do have a kind of, um, so they have this feature, you know, we talk about the the virtue at the level of the social. We talk about the sort of the justice of the city before we can talk about the justice of any particular individual or any particular act. Um, and then it looks as if it's really hard to hold anybody responsible for anything because <laughs> there's uh, always this, um, uh, you know, it's, it's the system that, that failed, not me in any right. particular case. So, um, would you, are you keen to, to, uh, um, to endorse this sort of thing, or are you just saying that this is a, a possible, a possible way to go?
0: The latter. Yeah. I'm
1: not, uh, I'm not, I'm not a,
0: a big fan of virtue theory in epistemology. I don't, I don't quite know, um, enough about virtue theory in, um, in ethics or in the political realm to, to say, but, uh, I basically was saying if I were a virtue theory, uh, sorry, right. a virtue theorist. This is what I would say. I, I, for reasons that we don't have to get into, I don't. I'm not a virtue theorist.
1: Right, right, yeah. right, right. Well, can we move then to um, sort of the discussion in chapter six of what you call um, coverage reliability? Because... Before we get there, Bob, I'm sorry. Oh, sure. Can I just make one last comment? Because you you
0: said something that strikes me as intriguing, and I it it's worth. I, I just want to follow up. Sure. Um, and I think it, it can be raised even if one isn't a virtue theorist. And that is the worry that you that you gave to virtue theory, but might be a worry for everyone, is once you go social, is there any blaming any one per- particular person for right. for what's going on? And actually, I think the answer is still yes. And I, I hope I, I can get your agreement on this, that it should be yes. And, and happily, it is yes. It's simply this. Um, we're each responsible for a part. The speaker is responsible for the testimony she asserts something, and she can assert properly or improperly. If she asserts improperly, she is to be blamed. Um, I, as the recipient of the testimony or of the assertion, um, I am the one that ultimately consumes it. Maybe I did so in an irresponsible fashion. Maybe you gave all the reasons to think that you were an an unreliable guy with respect to whether the Yankees won last night, and yet I still believed you. That would be on me. So I do think even after one goes in for a social epistemology, there still is room for blaming individual people or at least ascribing credit and blame um, or, or
1: uh, responsibility to individuals. Even in cases where the, 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 the account that one would give of me letting you down, let's imagine a case in which I'm the testifier, you're the recipient or the consumer of the testimony, I let you down in some way or other. And what would you say in the case where the story that we have to tell about my letting you down is a story that seems to absolve me of culpability. That is, I let you down not because I was trying to deceive you or was not being careful with uh, my observations or I didn't, you know, I lied to you or wasn't reading the right newspapers, but um, my testimony wound up being misleading or unreliable um, for reasons that have to do with what is going on in the minds of all kinds of other people. I mean, one of the let me just sort of raise this as a, as, as as a broader kind of concern. So, the um, the, the book seems to rely or, or seems to be most interested in these sort of two person cases. Uh, there's a testifier and a recipient or consumer of the testimony, and the thesis I take it is that uh, whether the the receiver of the testimony or the recipient recipient of the testimony uh, winds up having knowledge or having at least justified belief has to do with an assessment of what's going on in the mind of the person who testified. But I wonder, this may just be another way of stating the, the, the kind of, um, uh, the leakage issue or the proliferation if, issue. Um, things start looking much more complicated once we start realizing that, uh, once we start introducing into the cases that for any particular testifier, um, uh, part of the story of the reliability of that testimony is going to depend upon assessments of all kinds of other minds. Isn't that right?
0: Yes, that is correct. That is absolutely correct. And again, it could be a very difficult matter to, to to suss out who is responsible for what. The other thing that I would say is uh, the word responsible, I mean, you're reminding me, the word res- the, the word responsible and its ilk, responsibility, uh, culpability, they have a life of their own that you're more familiar with than I am. Um, and in epistemology, when I use the term respons- responsibility, um, I have in mind not just this notion of has the person behaved in an upstanding fashion, but also... Um, uh, you would be responsible for my, the the um, less than fully happy epistemic position of my belief when you testify badly, even if it's through no fault of your own. You happen to rely on uh, a newspaper that is, unbeknownst to you or to, to really to anyone, is unreliable. That's still, when I use the word responsibility, I, I use it even in that connection. What right. that suggests to me is that I don't think I'm using the notion of responsibility as it's often used in Um, in in ethics and in political philosophy. And I have to confess to you, I'm not sure
1: that's the happiest word to use. Um, I don't quite know what the word is there. Right, because in some cases it looks as if the sort of normative connotations are being... um, Downplayed might not be might be too strong a word, but you're not meaning to take on board all the cognitive implications. Where to assign responsibility to 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 an agent, either an epistemic agent or an agent of some other sort, usually is to bring along all of the moral uh, assessment uh, baggage. Right, and that that I think your your point is well taken. There, that
0: that I think um, my use of that term can 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 be misleading. Okay. Um,
1: Well, can we go on to chapter six? Is that okay? Okay. So. so the sixth chapter of relying on others uh is devoted um to an analysis of um beliefs uh that are formed through um the kind of epistemic reliance um that you call in the book actually sort of coverage reliability that is that you you're 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 relying on your community to have the right kind of uh I guess for lack of a better term coverage uh, uh and have reliable coverage of sort of what's going on uh in the world um and uh, the discussion is driven by a concern with uh, beliefs that have the following f- have the following form: if that were true, I would have heard about it by now. Uh, and um, I'm a political philosopher, so I, I actually um, have a special interest in these kinds of beliefs, where um, uh, you know um, we get reports that you know Sarah Palin didn't know that uh, Africa was a continent, and-, and these sorts of things. They wind up. She didn't quite say that or she said something outrageous that other people say she, in fact, didn't say. So there are all kinds of uh, issues in the political uh, realm that rely on these kinds of uh, considerations. You know, if that really happened that way, surely it would have been in The New York Times. It wasn't in The New York Times, so it didn't happen that way. Um, so can you uh, can you tell us a little bit about how the argument uh, of that six chapter runs and what your account is of these uh, special kinds of uh, of beliefs? Sure. So. I was interested in the
0: book in all of the the, the epistemology for beliefs formed through relying on others. Um, I thought the paradigmatic kind of reliance on another in belief formation is testimony. Um, but it dawned on me that, in fact, that's not the only way that re- we rely on others. Um, you know, for example, the New York Times has on its masthead all of the news that's fit to print. Right. So what they're purporting to do with that masthead is precisely this, that if there's anything that you that you should know about as a consumer of news in 21st century uh, the US, they will have it in their pages. They are purporting to keep you apprised of all of the facts about which you, you ought to be apprised. And I was thinking, wow, this is another way in which we rely on others. And in particular, we reason in precisely the way that you, that you um, reasoned earlier. Um, often. So if I ask you, did they ever find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? You might say, no, they didn't. And then I'd say, well, Bob, how do you know that? You haven't been to Iraq. Right. Um, and you might say, you might reply, well, if they if they had, I would have heard about it by now. So it's this kind of uh, reliance on others that I wanted to try to understand. Actually, I wanted to try to understand the epistemology of it. I should say, independently of this, I think it's really an interesting question, and it's actually a question in what... Um, uh, one of my colleagues, I forgot who this was, called um, uh, called um, uh, epistemic engineering. How nice. can we engineer our communities so that uh, all of the information that we need, whether in our professional lives or perhaps our private lives, is there when we need it? How can we organize our communities in such a way that we have, we have that come to pass? That's an interesting question. Uh, I assume, actually, believe it or not, from my few interactions with folks here in the business school at Northwestern at Kellogg I actually think that there are people in business schools that think about this because they look at flow of information in businesses and it would be great for business to be such that all of the information that you know the the uh, decision makers need is there at their fingertips when they need it
1: right and there's a standard analysis of what markets are that uh, attaches that, that tries to define markets in terms of a kind of information system
0: good Good, yeah. good, good,
1: good., yeah. so I, I
0: think that there's a, there's a lot to be thought about here. What I was the, the only thing, the, the point that I made in the book was that this kind of belief uh, requires a different epistemic treatment from the kind of uh, belief that we form through testimony. So it's a different kind of reliance. Um, and what I suggested is that uh, these beliefs should be seen unlike testimonial beliefs. I think these beliefs should be seen as inferential beliefs. That is, they're beliefs that we form on the basis of going through a certain inference. One of the premises is, if that were true, I would have heard about it by now. I haven't heard about it, therefore it's not true. So that that was um, the upshot in the book. I wanted to try to come up with an argument for thinking that this is unlike the case of testimony, and that the best way to think about this is as an inferential belief.
1: Right, right. And part of what the inference relies on, then, is a kind of, um, I don't know if you put it in this way, about if you use the term trust, but it is a kind of... At least a positive assessment of the social i mean the social epistemic system within which one is uh acquiring information or, or or gathering data that is I take it that more generally this kind of um uh if that were true, I would have heard it by by, by now belief is the the bridge in uh in a way to some of the more overtly social concerns Correct. with which the book ends. Can you tell us a little bit about that yeah so
0: i it, it does strike me, um, let me, let me first put it crudely and see if I can, I can uh, make it a little bit less crude as I go on. Okay. Th- there's a sense in which um, you and I are extremely lucky individuals. We happen to live in a community that is extremely knowledgeable and extremely well-connected. Uh, by well-connected, I mean connected to information sources which themselves are uh, or purport to give us good and reliable information about things going on around us you could easily imagine, um, growing up in a community where neither one of those things hold either. There's, it's an, it's, um, uh, impoverished when it comes to, um, uh, knowledge. It's, it, it does there's not a lot of knowledge in the community. You can imagine there aren't a lot of, um, uh, there's, if there's not a lot of wealth, there's not a lot of, uh, 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 ways to connect with information sources beyond the, the, uh, you know, the, the old fashioned ways talking to people, maybe calling people on the phone. Right. Um, there's a certain kind of luckiness that I think we 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 have or a certain kind of luck that we enjoy in virtue of living in, in these kinds of communities. And then the question becomes, okay, exactly what is it in virtue of which your community is of this sort? There are all sorts of social arrangements, all sorts of people performing all sorts of jobs, that those things are behind the scenes. They must be taking place or else we wouldn't have this happy, happy situation that we actually have. So the question is, can we start identifying some of those things can we um identify some of those things that aren't there in other communities where perhaps we think for example people born in those communities are not quite as epistemically lucky as as you or i and mm-hmm. then of course it gives rise to the kinds of things that i think you think about significantly more than i do what kinds of um you know are there political movements that we should start in virtue of this are there political rights that people have to to be well-informed um, what kind of political institutions are best created so that we can maximize our chances to be good citizens and make good sound uh, judgments on the things that are, are before us as as
1: a as a group of people? Right. Well, um, uh, like I've said before, uh the book is relying on others, and it really is a very, very engaging book. And I'll just say that, um, you know, I dabble in epistemology, uh, but um, and so don't often read uh, whole books, uh, whole essays on epistemology, as the subtitle says. But this was a really quite engaging uh, uh, and 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 very very clear, uh, uh, and I would even say in some places really enlightening uh, book. So um, we've taken up a lot of Thank time, your time, so Bob. That's kind. Yeah. yeah well. One last question. Uh, you had you, mentioned something about uh, 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 the next paper, or the paper that you gave in Bled and, um, uh, that's coming out. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what's on the horizon or what the next project is going to look like? So a lot of,
0: the, a lot of what I'm working on right now are other issues in social epistemology, uh, this, okay. this and that very variety of articles. Um, but the, the thing that's really excited me is I'm trying to uh, finish a book project on, uh, on the nature of the speech act of assertion. And huh. what, what made me think about uh, assertion, of course, is, was its original connection to testimony. Um, but it turns out that, that I think assertion is, is fundamentally interesting even beyond testimony. So roughly the idea of the book, uh, the book is this, that there's a huge literature on, on assertion these days. Um, uh, m- many of your listeners will know about this literature, talking about the norm of assertion. And often what's being debated is precisely what is assertion's norm. Um, what does it take for you to be warranted in asserting something? Most people think that it's an epistemic norm. You either have to know it or you have to be justified in believing it. Um, what I decided in the book was to assume that it has some sort of epistemic norm or other, and then see what light, if any, the sheds on a variety of topics that you might hope to, um, to illuminate with the nature of assertion. So for example, what is the relationship between the norm of assertion and the norm of belief? What, um... How does the fact that we assert things affect uh, how we ought to interpret one another? Um, how does the fact that we assert things enable us to hold each other responsible in the kinds of ways I was suggesting I was suggesting earlier um, do, Should we think that there's one norm of assertion or should we think that it's it's uh it's something that is um, uh, more sensitive to context contextual parameters so rather than trying to figure out exactly what the norm of assertion is I'm trying to assume that it's some, something epistemic and then using that to reflect on a variety of topics that assertion is connected to.
1: Well, that sounds um, uh, fascinating and uh, we look forward to, uh, to seeing the publication of that book and when it does get published maybe we'll uh, do another interview and talk to you about that. Thanks so much. Great. Well, thank you so much for, uh, uh, for your time today and for talking to us about the book. Thanks, Bob. I really appreciate you having me well, on. Yeah, take care now. Bye-bye. You have been listening to my interview with Professor Sanford Goldberg of Northwestern University. We've been talking about his book, Relying on Others, published in 2011 by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talish, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.